Let us pray together. Our Father, we turn our minds to the event that changed everything. Through the truth of it, through the glorious person of the Lord Jesus at its center, change us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the world doesn't know quite what to do with Christmas. It's a dilemma. The world has a straight-up love-hate relationship with Christmas, I think. On the one hand, it's the most wonderful time of the year. That's what the song tells us, the song written by a Jewish man who does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and doesn't mean to be singing his praises. In fact, did you know that it's estimated that about 50% of the most popular Christmas songs were written by unrepentant Jews, Jews who have no more interest in Christ than I do in squash. Yet they've written the songs that we sing every year, songs like, well, if you're a very bad person, you think chipmunks roasting in a forest fire. If you think that, you're very bad and you're my brother. But yes, nuts roasting on an open fire. In other words, the Christmas song written by a Jewish man, White Christmas, Winter Wonderland, Sleigh Ride, Santa Baby, Rockin' Round the Christmas Tree, Have a Holly Jolly Christmas, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and Let It Snow, among many others, written by Jews. Many in the world want to eliminate the name Christ from the holiday. They want to say happy holidays or season's greetings. Others are happy enough to keep the name in. They just ignore the person. Now, I have to stick in as an aside. I don't love the word Christmas because of its etymology. Christ's mass. As a Christian, I abominate mass. It is a horror. But we don't use the word to mean that anymore. We say Christmas just meaning Christ's birth. I mean, when you say Thursday, are you meaning to praise the God for But that's where Thursday comes from. When you say Wednesday, are you worshiping Odin? But that's where that word comes from. So we just use the word Christmas to mean the celebration of the birth of Christ. And there are hundreds, thousands of movies about Christmas that may have absolutely nothing to do with Christ, but they bear that name or that phrase in it. Here's a few that are on the list of Christmas movies. Bad Santa. Bad Santa 1. Bad Santa 2. Edward Scissorhands is on the Christmas list. Ernest Saves Christmas. Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Rocky IV on the list. The Search for Santa Paws. Barbie in A Christmas Carol. The Muppet Christmas Carol. Now, that's actually a pretty good movie. But but still, Muppet Christmas Carol. Of course, Die Hard. Now, that's a matter of some uh, 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 debate. I hope our church doesn't split over that. But uh, whether it's a Christmas movie or not, Ghosts of Girlfriends Past and Grumpy Cat's Worst Christmas Ever. These are among the thousands of Christmas movies which may have absolutely nothing to do with Christ at all, but they're Christmas movies. Hallmark has a number of Christmas movies. How many Christmas movies do you suppose Hallmark has? Nearly 300. And of those 300, I've seen none. But here's some of the titles. The Sons of Mistletoe. Now, that makes me think of a movie from the 50s called The Sons of Hercules. But I don't think there's a connection. The Sons of Mistletoe. A Boyfriend for Christmas. Boyfriends of Christmas Past. Annie Claus is Coming to Town. It's Christmas, Carol. I'm not making these up. (laughs) Christmas in Canaan. Christmas in Rome. Christmas in Vienna. Christmas in Montana. Christmas in Tahoe. You know what there's not Christmas in? No Christmas in Houston. (laughs) Finding Santa. Christmas in the air. Gingerbread miracle. Now this one is, is odd. A kismet Christmas. Now, kismet is the arbitrary will of Allah. So, the arbitrary will of Allah, Christmas. And uh, finally on my list, 
never been crisped. <laughs> never been crisped, plus some 285 more. Christmas, 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 but not much Christ. So, on the one hand, it's the most wonderful time of the year. The world loves Christmas. On the other hand, not so much. The world hates Christmas. For the same reason, many people love Christmas because it's a time for family. Many people hate Christmas because it's a time for family. They don't get along with their family. And Christmas makes them get together with people they don't like and avoid most of the year. And they have to pretend that they like them for a while. They're forced to make nice with people they don't really care for much. Um, And oddly, um, and a bit more seriously, it seems like a lot of families have tragedies uh, associated with the Christmas time. Lost loved ones who pass away around Christmas. Our, our families, thus, I know many families are. So on the one hand, it's a wonderful time. On the other hand, not. But for all that, Christmas is dearly loved and treasured in our society, in the parts of the world that know about it. It's not hard to see some of the reasons why. I mean, aesthetically, sure, it can be very gaudy, but it's a gorgeous time. The, the reds and the greens, the gold and the silver, the wonderful smells, the foods, certainly good for business. But the world looks to Christmas as having more. They talk about it as being a loving, caring, wonderful time of the year. Uh, The world is kind of like the Grinch who puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. A little bit more... But but what more? And why more? What does it rest on? What is objectively different about it? Why does the world have such an attraction to Christmas, but no love for Christ? This is what we're going to look at. So first, Roman numeral one, the world and Christmas. The world and Christmas. We're going to look inside of its attitude towards Christmas. And first I want to consider with you you their yearnings. Y-E-A-R-N. Their yearnings. Their desires. Their longings. These come to the surface at Christmas time. They know in their heart of hearts that they're not happy. They know that all is not well. They know that the most of the world doesn't get along during the year. There are wars between nations and nations. There are wars between political neighbors and political neighbors. There are wars within our big city between uh, class and class, between skin color and skin color. There's wars within families. There's wars and hatred everywhere. And the world longs for what we're built to long for. The world longs for connection. It, It longs for community. It longs for hope and joy and and peace and beauty. It longs for redemption is what it longs for. And they relate all these blessings to Christmas. They see that Christmas represents all these longed for fruits. And historically, Christmas has been a time for the demonstration of these longed for fruits. You could say the hopes and fears of all the years are met. In this holiday celebration, when these yearnings come to the surface. But then we must talk, let us be, about their choices. Because their choices are where they are, where they are. The truth of the matter, the cold hard truth of the matter, is that the world wants the blessings of Christmas, but it doesn't want Christ. Now, mostly they don't even know who Jesus is. And mostly who they think Jesus is. They're in equal measures just as wrong as they are certain. But one thing they are certain of is they don't need him. They get along just fine without him. They can have all of those fruits without having Christ. And they see uh, they want nothing to do with him and they feel that they're actually better off on their own. So what they do then at Christmas time is they take the fruits from the tree of Christ's birth and the person of Christ. They take those fruits and they saw them off from the tree. They separate them from the tree and then they throw the tree into the blaze and figure everything's going to work out just fine. They're like people who love milk and eggs and then go kill all the cattle and the chickens. Now, how's that going to work out? 
It's going to work out about the same way it's worked out for us to love the fruits of Christmas, but to throw away the heart and the center and the basis of Christmas. So that's their choices. Let's talk then about the harvest that they reap from these choices. These grow straight out of the choices and explain why they don't have the fruits that they long for. The fruits cut off from the tree wither and die. So what they do is they paint these withered fruits. So that, and they insist they look they're doing just fine because they're all painted red and green and yellow. Or they make plastic fruits and insist that they're just as good as the real thing. They loudly insist that they're every bit as good as the real thing. And they keep telling each other that all these fruits of Christmas are real and they're satisfying and they're wonderful things. Well, meanwhile, everything continues to spin out of control. They're like the dog in the meme, the little cartoon dog with a little cartoon hat and a little cartoon smile. And he's sitting at a table in a house that's completely in flames. And what does the dog say? The dog says, this is fine. And picks up his empty mug and looks at it with a smile. And that's the world right now. This is fine. They've got all the fake fruits and they're just as good as the real thing. But the whole continues to spiral out of control. Why? Because when we gave up Christ, we gave up God. When we gave up God, we gave up ourselves. When we gave up ourselves, we gave up each other. And we have lost creation. We don't even know what creation is. We don't know whether to worship it or exploit it. We look in a mirror and we see a man, but we say it's a woman or vice versa. We don't know what to make of anything anymore. So Christmas comes and we pretend that everything's fine and we pretend we have all these glorious fruits and we can have them all without Jesus. But you know what? Pretending isn't the same as creating. Pretending something's true doesn't make it true. And pretending doesn't change anything. So the same people we were on 1224, we are on 1225, and will be on 1226, if all we have is pretending. So that brings us to their dilemma. Letter C is their harvest. Letter D is their dilemma. The Christmas dilemma, well, what is it? It's that the world rightly sees in Christmas everything they most deeply need, and everything they most deeply want. But the problem is all those fruits that they desire come from the person and work of Jesus Christ. And they don't want anything to do with the real Jesus Christ. It's your classic attraction avoidance thing. They are drawn to what they most need, but at the same time, they're repelled by what they most need. And they've convinced themselves that the one thing they must not do is admit their need of Christ and reach out to Christ in helpless, repentant faith. That's their deepest need. That's the last thing they want. That's a dilemma. Christmas represents the coming and work of Christ. In it is a bunch of beautiful, glorious fruit. They want the fruit. They don't want the Christ. That's the Christmas dilemma. That's the world in Christmas then. Now let's turn our eyes to Christ and the world. We've seen a way that the world looks toward Christ and toward Christmas. Let's talk about what Christ brings to the world. And the one thing that he brings to the world and he alone brings to the world is the true diagnosis. The true diagnosis. That is to say Jesus and Jesus alone puts his finger on what the real problem is. And in thinking of that, we need to turn our eyes to the real heart of the problem that Jesus exposes. Number one, of course, the real heart of the problem. Now, here here's the problem. The problem is that the problem isn't what the world thinks the problem is. <laughs> I say that again. The problem is that the problem isn't what the world thinks the problem is. What does the world think the problem is? Well, the world thinks that they have good hearts, basically. And because they have good hearts, they have good desires. And their methods for getting those desires are all good. Good, good, good. So what's the problem? It's all external. The problem is all external. It's white people. Uh, no, it's black people. No, it's brown people. No, you know, really, it's those yellow people. 
It's the Republicans, especially the MAGA Republicans. No, it's the Democrats, especially the woke Democrats. No, it's because there aren't enough laws. Just a few more ought to do it. No, it's because there's too many. And if we just have liberty, everything is going to be fine. It's because we need a, a more liberal Democrat in the White House. No, it's because we need a conservative Republican in the White House. It, it, it's all out there. It's all them. And if those things could be fixed, everything's fine because inside we're just fine. The trouble is every part of that is wrong. And so every cure, every cure just makes things worse because we're not really looking. We're not diagnosing the right problem. We're not treating the right problem and we're not bringing the right solution to the problem. Otherwise, we're fine. That was a pause for laughter. We're obviously not fine at all. So Jesus alone goes to the true heart of the problem. And the true heart of the problem is the heart. The heart's the true part of the, the true heart of the problem. Listen to Jesus from Mark chapter seven, Mark seven, verses 20 through 23, Mark seven, 20 through 23. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the heart, that is what defiles the man. Well, right there, what messes a man up, what makes him unfit for fellowship with God, what ruins him comes from within him. And remember, the heart is not the seat of the emotions only. The heart is the center of thinking and willing and valuing and hating. It's, it's the very center of us. And he says from the very center of us comes what defiles us. He goes on to say, for from within... Out of the heart of men proceed lollipops, puppies, and unicorns. Right? Isn't that just how Jesus sees the... Well, that's how we see the heart of man. Well, what's the gospel of Hollywood? Trust your heart. Your heart will never lead you wrong. What does Jesus say? Out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, one class wanting what the other class has. Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man, the Lord Jesus says. What does that list sound like? It just sounds like the headlines for every day. Just another day ending in why. Every headline has something to do with one of these things. And where do they come from? From, from who's in the White House? No. It doesn't really matter who's in the White House for this. It come from the human heart. And until that's changed, the headlines aren't going to change. So this is where Jesus takes us. Jesus says, now here's the thing, though. To the world, the heart is the solution to all the problems. The heart is the best part of us. It's the, it's the one part of us that will never lead us astray, right? You can always count on your heart. I mean, if you say, I think this, but in my heart, I think this. Well, you've got to go with your heart. That's the world's view. And it's absolutely convinced that it's got everything. So to fix all of the troubles and woes and miseries, the world's go-to place is the heart. And Jesus says that search is doomed to disaster. It's doomed to misery. It's doomed to all of the worst fruits because the heart is the root and source of all of our miseries. And so... How can I solve my problems by going to the very thing that caused my problems? How can I alleviate my miseries by going on and drawing from the very source of all my miseries? How can the world solve its problems by going to the source of all its problems? And when you get this wrong, you're going to get everything wrong. And saying, it's Christmas, isn't going to make everything right. And it's not going to change anybody's Heart and saying keep Christmas all year won't change our hearts because once December 26 rolls around, our hearts are still going to be our hearts. And as Proverbs 4 says, our life flows from our hearts. So Jesus takes us to the real heart of the problem, which is the heart. Number two, Jesus would point us to the real origin of the problem. Because Jesus' Bible was our Bible, and he would point us to what it teaches. Now, the world gets this totally wrong, and I'm, I'm, I'm raising the question of why are our hearts the way they are? Why are our hearts corrupt and the source of all of our misery? 
in the world's mind, we started bad and got better. We started as goo and then evolved to, what do they say, lower and lower forms? No, higher and higher forms. As we went backwards, does the world say? No, as we went forward, because that's their view of evolution. Evolution is us getting better and better every day. And so today we're the process of billions and billions of years of getting better and better in the universe. And so how's that how's that working out for you? What do we see as we look at the world? Is everything all better? We've had thousands of years. uh, Well, to them, millions of years to get it right. What would you point to, to to say these here's. Human nature problems that we've... How about the way men treat men? How about slavery? We look back at slavery. Yeah, that's, that's a sure one, isn't it? Because we've, we've made our form of slavery outlawed, haven't we? So that's all better. But is slavery eliminated? No, slavery is still practiced around the world. And what about us? What about the arguments that it's okay to enslave others because they're not fully human? That argument's all gone in America, right? No. As a matter of fact, we kill tens of thousands of innocent, helpless babies because we've convinced ourselves they're not fully human. And if they're inconvenient or they're imperfect, it's fine to kill them. The same argument that was used for slavery, and it's doing just fine. I mean, it's really something to listen to an atheist explain why he doesn't really need a system of morality and then explain why abortion's okay. Uh, it just is absolute nonsense. What about murder? We've eliminated murder, right? No, we've just made it easier to kill people further away, faster, and on a greater scale. Right? And isn't that exactly what we're doing? We don't need to see the people we kill. We send a drone to do it. Right? It's all faceless and impersonal. But but is it ended? No, not at all. It's just we're better at it now, as a matter of fact. How about hatred and division? We've had a lot of time to work on that. So we're a whole lot less divided and hateful today than we were 100, 200 years ago when it was a more of a Christian atmosphere. We're a lot better now, right? Oh, we're more divided than ever before. Intersectionalism has has divided us and sliced us more than a Ronco onion dicer. Boy, have I reached into the past there. Uh, (laughs) There's no telling what might be in the attic of my mind. But we're more divided than ever before. Uh, Anti-Semitism, right? In the second century B.C., anti-Semitism was a terrible thing. But did it stop being? And you're thinking, oh, yeah, no, Nazi Germany. But that's a long time ago. Right, because there's no anti-Semitism now, right? Especially not in America. I mean, the Nazis are always the bad guys. But we see anti-Semitism all over our country. So how's that evolution thing working out? Well, it's not working out at all. Why? Well, because we didn't start bad and get better and better and better. And so, well, okay, what do we do then? What's our solution? I know what. We'll call evil good. Problem solved. You know, it's not a bug. It's a feature. (laughs) That's the approach. But, of course, that's suicidal folly. We all know that they really are problems. And putting different labels on them won't make them not problems. So Jesus alone gets it right. We didn't start low and head up. We started up and headed down. Look to Genesis 1, right where Jesus' Bible started as well. Turn with me to Genesis 1. Actually, turn there. Like I always say it's one of the two easiest books to find. So, Genesis 1, we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, you hear loudmouth, chest-pounding, keyboard atheists all the time talking about, well, you want to say God is good and kind and everything, but why is all this murder and, and, and so forth? And, you know, I'm with them. I don't believe in the God they're talking about, but their God doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. The Bible answers that question, but they don't seem to realize it. Uh, what does the Bible say about the world? Well, God created the heavens and the earth. It was formless and void, so he started forming it. And after creating light, he says in verse 4 that that's good. And he makes dry land and waters in verse 10. He says that's good. And he keeps creating and creating, and every part is good. And then in verse 26, in this good, 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 good world, he creates a man and a woman in his image and gives them charge over all of it under him in paradise, in a world with no problems and no miseries and no woes, no hatred, no anger, no war. He puts them in this world. And then in verse 31, what what does he say? It was very good. That's the world God made. A world that's very good. A world that is like what we yearn for in Christmas. 
connection, relationship, peace, health, prosperity, wonderfulness. There is just one rule that he made, a one warning that he gave in chapter two, putting uh, Adam in literal paradise, <laughs> in literal paradise, where he tells him he can eat any tree he wants. Two sixteen, in two seventeen, he says, "But there's this one tree, <clears throat> the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat it in the day." You eat from it, you will surely die. And dying means death and everything that leads to it and belongs to it. It's shorthand for the world of misery and pain and suffering ending in death. You will surely die, he says. And then what's the very next thing we see? We see them at the tree. And what's the next thing we see? We see them eating the fruit. And so what happens when they eat the fruit? They die. If only someone had warned them. But God did warn them. And exactly what he said happened. And so immediately, Adam and Eve lose each other. He's throwing her under the bus. They're blaming each other. They're blaming creation. They're blaming God. Turn the page. Here's brother killing brother. Wow, what a terrible world God made. Mm, No, let's be accurate. What a terrible world we made. What a terrible world sin made. The first time they thought that they were better and smarter than God. They thought they were better and smarter than God. And so they imposed their will and their values on God. And in comes sin and in comes death. And like Romans 5.12 says, it spreads to all men because all sinned in Adam. So sin and death, which again I remind you, it's shorthand for all these miseries we've been talking about. And that is a result of our sin. And now we have the world we live in, which is not the world as God made it. It's the world as our sin made it. So it's such an irony to hear the atheist taking the state of the world and blaming God for it, saying this is why he can't believe there's a good God, because there's all this death and cancer and misery, ignoring the fact that it's his heart that caused it. It's the attitude that he lives by that caused all this. The attitude that I don't need God. I don't need God's judgment. I don't need God's laws. That's why the world is the world that he complains about. He's part of that and not part of any solution. So this is why the world needs Jesus. But at the same time, it's why the world won't have Jesus. John's gospel shows us that. Turn to John chapter 1. Why don't we want what we need? Well, that's the, that's the very description of a dilemma. What we need, we don't want. Well, look at John 1. John introduces us to Jesus right at the start. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. So the light in this dark world, the light in this dark world, shining in the darkness of the world. The world, the darkness tries to overtake it, but does not succeed. So now take us to the part where Christmas comes in, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So this is Christmas. Christmas is God the Son taking on a a human nature, coming down and entering our race, the human race, taking on a full and sinless human nature and coming to shine light in our darkness. Well, wonderful. This is just what we need, right? We need light in our darkness and coming to reveal God to us. Well, wonderful. This is just what we need, isn't it? We have crusted over God with idolatry and lies and delusions and false philosophies and false religions. And here Jesus comes and he expounds God. He explains God. He makes known to us because he is the only begotten of the Father. He's full of grace and truth. He is literally God incarnate. So what's the problem? Why isn't the world Christian? Turn to chapter 3.
Look at chapter 3, and we look at verses 19 and 20, where we read, And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, right? We just read that. And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Oh, there's the heart of it. Verse 20, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. Well, you know, whether you're pretty or ugly, young or old, fit or unfit, you and I share something in common. We all look our best in the darkness. <laughs> I mean, because any, any flaw, any, anything, any imperfection, you can't see it. You can't see it. And this is exactly our case. Why would we want to go to the light that shows us for who we are? Shows, us, shows the ruin that sin has made of us. So no, the world desperately needs Jesus. Jesus is the very place the world needs to be. And Jesus is the last place the world wants to be. Because he's the light and their darkness. And the light exposes the darkness. And then turn, turn to chapter 8. Just after the section we very often read about being a real disciple of Christ by continuing in his word knowing the truth and being made free. Well, the Jews are very insulted by this. They've never been slaves. They, they lie. <laughs> but what Jesus says in verse 34 is what we're looking at now. John 8:34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Well, that's why we need him. Only the son can make us free from our sin. But where are we? We're with the Jews just before that. Slaves? Who are you calling a slave? We're just fine. And to admit that we need him to free us is to admit that we are slaves. So there's the dilemma. He has what we need, but pride and darkness won't let us go to him. So he alone, Jesus alone, brings the true diagnosis. And there it is. You just had it. He also alone brings the real remedy. Letter B, the real remedy. And we see the real remedy in Christ's mission. Why did Christ come to earth? The Bible puts it fairly simply. Why did Christ come to earth? Matthew 121, Christmas announcement of the angel. The angel says, and she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, Greek Jesus, Hebrew Yeshua, which means salvation. You shall call his name salvation, for he will save. And the Greek literally says, for he himself will save. It is he who will save his people from their sins. Why was Jesus born? To save his people from their sins. The way Paul puts it is 1 Timothy 1.15. 1 Timothy 1:15 It is a trustworthy saying and worthy uh, sorry it's a trustworthy saying and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world literally he writes came into the world sinners to save that was his target sinners and his mission was to save sinners among whom I am foremost now we're going to reflect on those two verses he was born to save his people from their sins he came to save sinners so, three truths about this. First, only Christ can do it. Letter A, only Christ can do it. See, if Jesus were in the same mess as we, could he save anybody? No, he'd need saving. If he was in the same darkness, he was, if he was the same person as we, he wouldn't do any saving. He would need saving. If he came from within us, bearing our sin and fallenness, no, he would have to come from above us and outside of us into our race to save us. And we just read that's exactly what he did. He was in the beginning with God, and he was God, and he became flesh. He entered our race from outside. He took on a fully human nature, just like us in every respect, except without sin. Otherwise, perfectly human and perfectly God. So he comes from outside and from above to bring this salvation. Only Christ can do it. We cannot save ourselves. 
Only Christ can do it. Secondly, letter B, only Christ does do it. Only Christ does do it. Well, what do these verses say? They, they, they say he came to save sinners. It doesn't say he, he came to try to save sinners. The angel doesn't say he's going to try to save his people from their sins. He's going to do it. He's God. God doesn't fail at what God sets out to do. He came to save his people from their sins. He came to save sinners. And so he comes and saves them. He doesn't try to save them. It doesn't say that he came to teach sinners. That would simply leave us sinners. Maybe better informed sinners, but still sinners. He didn't come to set an example for sinners. That would leave us sinners more condemned because we had a perfect example. No, he didn't come just to do any of those things. He came to save sinners. And and to save, you're doing for another person what that person can't do for himself. And, And you're doing it completely. You're accomplishing it. You're actually saving. You're not offering it. You're actually doing it. And this is what Christ came to do. Actually to save sinners. Only Christ could. Only Christ did. So only Christ does do it. And third, letter C, we need Christ to do it. We need him to do it. Saving implies that we're lost and helpless. What kind of people need saving? Lost people. There's a reason why I know Mary wasn't sinless. Of course she was a sinner. She called God my Savior. Only sinners need saviors, and we're all sinners. We're all helpless. We're all bound in the, in the slavery of our hearts. Our problem is ourselves, and everywhere we go, there we are. We bring our problem with us. So saving implies we're lost and helpless. Saving means a rescue from the misery we're in, from the gulag of our hearts. A rescue into a new and a glorious and a different life. In fact, the kind of life that Christmas points to. Jesus came to save people into that life. Jesus came to save lost, hopeless people into the life where they can know joy and hope and Purpose and connection, connection with God above all and with other with each other once again. So Christ's mission is to save sinners. What about Christ's method? Number two, well, his method simply is that he gave his life as a ransom. He says that himself in Matthew twenty twenty eight. Matthew twenty twenty eight. just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, who needs to be ransomed? Captives need to be ransomed. Slaves need to be ransomed. Kidnapped people need to be ransomed. That's who Jesus came for. And the price of that ransom was his life. Oh, you say, yes, that life lived in selfless giving. No, that's not what he means. He means that life poured out in a violent death on the cross. That's what he means. Because that's how the the life, the Greek word for soul, that's how it's offered up for others. Just to summarize a bunch of Old Testament teaching, God taught this in the Old Testament by the sacrificial system, where the whole point of offering spotless animals for sinners was that that was a picture. The souls of the blameless ones offered for the souls of the guilty ones. And the way their souls were offered was through a bloody death. And the way Jesus would give his soul to ransom sinners is by a bloody death. So the thought of Christmas should send your mind right to the cross. The thought of Christmas should send your mind right to the cross. Because that's why, what he was born. You know, some people try to say, well, Christmas isn't that, that, that important. Uh, what really matters is, is Calvary, the cross. Well... Uh, try having a Calvary without a Christmas. How would you do that? Could God the Son come straight down from heaven to the cross? Uh, No blood to shed. No body to suffer. No human nature to offer. No. This is why Christmas. Christmas for Calvary. Christmas for the substitutionary death for sinners. For the one thing that they needed. Nothing, Nothing coming from inside of us Something coming from the plan and the work of God, and particularly the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. Him offering his infinitely valuable life as a ransom for his people. So he gave his life as a ransom. Letter B, he shed his blood for pardon. Again, these are Jesus' words in Matthew 26, 28. He says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
So Jesus saves not by teaching, not by example, but by his death on the cross, by atoning for the sins of his lost people. And so having done that work and having accomplished that work, that brings us to a grand offer. Let her see a grand offer. And what is that offer? Come and live. What a deal. Come and live. You see Jesus' invitation in John 5:24. You could turn there with me if you're where we were. You're still at John 8. Look at John 5:24. It's not magic. It only does us good if we take this into our hearts. John 5:24. Jesus is here talking with Jews who are arguing with him and trying to find fault with him. And he says this in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So remember this death we've talked about. This is all of the miseries of sin. All the miseries that we see in the world today are fruits of that death. And he gives an invitation to life. For who then? For those who hear my word, just like you are right now. Anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and doesn't come into judgment. So hear and believe. Now, he who, he says, he who hears my word, that's anyone. What race? Human race. What class? Any class. What record? What sins prevent someone from coming? On God's side, none. None. This is only for sinners. I mean, this is only for sinners. You say, surely not big sinners. Well, the thing is, there's no other kind. We're all big sinners. We just estimate it wrong because we don't see how holy and righteous God is. But no, this is for sinners. It's open to anyone. The invitation stands open to anyone and to all. The door is wide open, but it is a narrow door. And only one can come through at a time. You're not there because your dad's there or your mom or your brother or your sister, your husband or your wife. One by one, we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and enter this door. He is the door. He's the only way, but he is the way. And I remind you, death is shorthand for all the miseries that come with sin. Life is shorthand for all the wonders that come with eternal life. It's not just eternal existence. Everybody's going to exist forever. It's just that sadly, most people will exist under the wrath of God. But to exist in fellowship with God, in communion with God, in joy, in freedom, with hope, to know these things now, to know joy and hope and a clear conscience now, this is the gift of Jesus to all who hear his word and believe. These are the Christmas blessings and infinitely more. They're ours to be had if we hear the words of Jesus and believe the one who sent him. This is Christ's invitation, but oh, that brings us to our issue. And here's the real problem. What is our issue? I just drop your eyes down to John 5. And uh, we'll start with verse 39 for a little context, but 40 is my target. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness about me. And here's the kicker. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you might have life. The problem is not outside of them. It's inside of them. It's that heart. You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I think this is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. But it's, the, it's true. It's absolutely true. And I see it all the time. You are not willing to come to me that you might have life. And there's the dilemma. All of these things we yearn for and so badly need, they're right there in front of us in Jesus Christ. We're just not willing to come. Just not willing to come. Life, redemption, forgiveness, joy, all right there. We have but to come in faith and live. But he is the light and we're darkness. He is God. He's the Lord. We kind of wanted to be God and Lord. So we find ourselves in the position I found very wonderfully portrayed in a book. 
I'm sure most of you have heard of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. They're a, they're a, a series of fantasy books for children, they say, but I'm not sure whether more children or more adults read them. They're absolutely wonderful. I, I totally um, recommend them to you. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the first. This is a scene from the book The Silver Chair. So Narnia is this fantasy land, not, not in our world, but some children are brought into this world in these books. And in that world, they encounter a character named Aslan, who is a lion. He's the son of the emperor over the sea. And Aslan is Christ. He is, he is an allegorical figure for Jesus Christ. Aslan the lion. Well, in this book, The Silver Chair, Jill Pohl, an English schoolgirl, has been whisked into Narnia. But she doesn't know it. She doesn't really know where she is. She's just been talking to her friend who's been there once about it. But as soon as she gets there, they're separated. So she's all on her own, Jill Pohl is. And she doesn't really know anything except that she doesn't know where she is and that she is dreadfully thirsty. Horribly, dreadfully thirsty. And as she walks along, she hears the one thing she's yearning to hear. She hears water. The delightful, chuckling, musical sound of water. And she goes and she finds this. And sure enough, there is a bright glittering, beautiful stream of crystal clear water right in front of it. And let me read to you what happens next. And although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she'd been turned into stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay a lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws stuck, forepaws struck out in front of it. Its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she'd tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off of it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours, and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt that she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're hungry, you may drink. They were the first words she'd heard since she arrived in this land. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. And she realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she'd seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than when she than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. (laughs) Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Well, do you eat girls? She said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Oh, I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. 
there is no other stream, said the lion. And there it is. And there we are. There is no other stream. That's the Christmas dilemma. The world's dilemma is that it loves the gifts of Christmas, but not the Christ of Christmas. It is dying of thirst, nearly frantic, and right there in front of it is the river of the water of life. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is not going to move aside. Yet it is precisely him whom we need. Every misery we suffer from caused by sin and the penalties of sin. And it's Jesus Christ alone, born as a man, God born as a man on that Christmas morning, who was born in Bethlehem to save his people from their sin, who came to the world as a baby to save sinners, who paid the full penalty of his people's sin, who calls all to come to him and him alone for forgiveness, for life, for reconciliation, for hope, for joy. For love, all the things we associate with Christmas, which are found in Jesus Christ alone, found in him abundantly, but found in him alone. Won't you come, drink and live? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word from your word and the crystal clear picture it paints for us. The dilemma in which our world finds itself, darkness, hatred, misery, death, one solution, the one who is the resurrection and the life, the one who gives the water of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Father, we thank you for him. We who know him, thank you forever and ever and ever. And we have found grace upon grace in him. We have found love more than we can even get our arms around. We found hope. We found joy. We found you in your son, Jesus Christ. We found our sins washed away. We've found our sins pardoned, paid for, atoned for. We found forgiveness and reconciliation to you. We found a family of those who likewise have been washed in the blood of the lamb. And we can't thank you enough. We have hope that leads on through all eternity. We have these things and we have them in Christ. Our yearning is that those who we love and know who don't know these things will come to Christ. I pray for those who come not knowing him. Most concerned about those who think they did, but, but don't. They have just a formal now and again superficial religion, religion, but no saving faith. Or those who are really hearing of Christ seriously for the first time. Whoever they are, Father, you know their hearts. I pray for the work of the Spirit of God, opening blind eyes, giving life to dead hearts, leading them to come fleeing to Christ, calling out on his name for salvation in life. We know you can do these things. We know you can do more than we ask. And we pray that you will. In Jesus' name, amen.